Good morning, everybody. Those of you who don't know me, I'm Tim Burkett, and uh, I've been not around too much lately because I have some some illness symptoms, but I'm feeling pretty good this morning and really happy to introduce our um, guest speaker today, who's been a friend of mine for since before most of you guys were born. <laughs> She and I practiced together here at the Zen Center for seven years. Uh, I don't know, I would say from the late 70s to the mid 80s. And we were virtually at Zen Center every morning together. Then she disappeared into the ether. <laughs> but I found her, or she found me. Jane Bleeg Dollinger, we used to know her as Jane Dollinger. Um, and Jane was the Tenzo when she was at Zen Center. Raise your hand if you know what a Tenzo is. Oh, only about half of you. That's the head cook, but it's more than the head cook. Read Dogen if you want to know what the Tenzo is all about. Um, she was the administrator at Zen Center for a while. She's a good administrator. Um, then she moved to Rochester, <clears throat> New York. Um, and I went to visit her two or three times over the years, and she practiced mostly on her own there, but she visited Thich Nhat Hanh in France and practiced with him, and, she, and actually, I was at a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh and Jane, I don't know, late 80s maybe, who knows, before he was as famous as he's become. Um, so Jane has been a college professor, a freelance writer, a nonprofit leader. Uh, for the last seven years, she's been involved with a Sangha in Rochester, uh, where I've spoken, Dharma Refuge. Um, she's a bit on their board, um, and she's a, she teaches there. So I'm just so happy to welcome Jane home. <laughs> welcome home, Jane. Thank you, Tim. Um, it's really a surprise and an honor to be invited to talk to you. And when I asked Tim, uh, so should I talk about a you know particular teaching or would they rather hear more about my practice? He said, oh, no, no, no. Bi biography, autobiography, tell them about your path. So that's what I'm going to be talking about. And um, I wrote out this talk, focused on it. And then, of course, while I was meditating this morning, some slightly different ideas came up. So I'm going to kind of do a mix of those ideas and the talk that I wrote out. Um, Tim gave you a good sort of summary of my Buddhist path. But uh, what he didn't mention is in the middle, there was 30 years of practicing on my own. I made a very, it's the biggest mistake I ever made in my practice, which is I didn't follow Katagiri's advice, always practice with a Sangha. So if I had it to redo, I would redo that piece. But um, what actually started my Buddhist journey, particularly was the book that changed my life, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Um, I read it one weekend when I was house-sitting for somebody in the San Francisco area. I was teaching at the time psychology, read the book, was totally captured by it, went down to San Francisco Zen Center the next weekend, 
sat probably my only period for the next several years with no pain at all, heard a Dharma talk, and that was it. I had found my path. Um, a year later, I uh, was uh, offered the opportunity to become the department chair in the psychology department at the school that I was at at the age of 29. But um, interestingly, suffering intervened and led me to do a different choice. What had drawn me to the Buddhist path in the first place was its view of suffering, that suffering, having suffering in your life didn't mean that you had failed and you were a horrible person. It was just part of being human and we all experienced it. Uh, I had been taught in normal, uh, I think, middle-class Jewish American culture that if you worked really hard and did things right, life would be happy. You wouldn't have any suffering. Well, guess what? That wasn't true for me. I had worked very hard in my life. Um, I had done a lot of good things, but I was suffering up the kazoo. At that particular time, a really vicious binge eating disorder that I had wrestled with for about nine years was rearing its head again. My father was dying of leukemia. My sister was suicidal. My horse fell down with me and I had a horrible concussion. And my relationships were just a mess, even though my professional career was thriving. So I decided uh, instead of taking that department chair position, I would sort of wander around the country, find the Zen community that spoke to my heart and the teacher because as much as I was grateful for San Francisco Zen Center, there was something about it that just didn't feel right for me for the long haul. So Grace follows me around in my life and Grace found me at Green Gulch. Um, I was telling the story to someone. I was saying that Suzuki Roshi felt like my teacher, but he had died. And they said, well, we heard of this guy, Katagiri Roshi, and he's in Minnesota and he's a lot like Suzuki maybe you should look into him. And I'd never heard of him. And by the way, they said, somebody who was in Minnesota for many years is here at Green Gulch today. So they hooked me up with that guy. I don't remember his name. We had an amazing conversation. I think the next day I called Minnesota Zen Center. Katagiri Roshi answered the phone. We had an amazing conversation. And I said, all right, well, I'm planning to wander around the country with my dog, seven boxes, and my Pinto station wagon. We're going to camp most of the time. I'm supposed to be checking out communities. So I'm definitely coming to Minnesota. So what ended up happening is I didn't really check out any other communities. There was such a, something in my heart that felt right about Minnesota Zen Center from the moment I spoke to Category Roshi. So part of the way through the trip, I ended up in Minnesota for 10 days, um, had an amazing experience there from, from the minute I crossed over the state line and it said, welcome to Minnesota. Um, I felt so welcomed by the Sangha, by Roshi, by um, the people that I interacted with, not only in the Sangha, but just at the library and in the streets in Minnesota, um, that I said, this is where I'm gonna land at least for a while. Um, so I did end up spending seven years there. And you know, Tim told you about some of the things that I was involved with. I have amazing memories from my seven years in Minnesota. 
Um, not all of them good, but a lot of them amazing. I, I remember just walking down the street one day towards Zen Center as I um, was, I think, going there to do some of my administrator work and just having this feeling come over me like it was a feeling of joy. It was like a peak experience, like this is what I am meant to do in my life right now. And it doesn't matter if bad things happen in the future, the bad things in the past don't matter. I am doing what I was meant to be practicing and working with and for Zen Center. Um, another highlight, and you're going to laugh at this one, during the year that I was Tenzo, um, one of my experiences was, and this was the imp in me, I'm a pretty serious person. I didn't do this kind of thing very often. I got this idea in my head that during a seven-day session, which is very serious and very intense, and I think this was like halfway through when you're really sort of in the mud usually, I decided that for dinner I would serve ice cream as the second bowl. Tim, I don't know if you were at that session. And I will never forget Greg, I forget his last name's eyes got as big as saucers when we brought around the ice cream to serve in the second bowl. And I will say, um, in addition to the glee that people experienced during that, afterwards, there was this big brouhaha. You don't do something like that during a session. So that was probably the first and last time that ice cream ever got served during a session. Um, anyway, I, I had fun. I worked very intensely. There were periods of great angst, like when Kadiguri Roshi almost died from a twisted intestine. And it brought out a lot of craziness in the Sangha. Some of it got dumped on me, but I mean, we worked it out. That's what a community does. I remember Thanksgiving at Liz Erotica's house where I shared Liz's house with her and some other people part of the time I was there. And we just welcomed anybody who didn't have anything to do at Thanksgiving, come and share Thanksgiving with us. And it was, it was wonderful. Um, people that lived together, people that worked together, people that walked in minus 20 degree temperature to the Y after we practiced from five to seven in the morning. It was a life-changing period in my life. And I think set the stage for anything I've been able to do and be since then, that sense of Sangha. So I'm deeply, deeply appreciative for that. Um, after I left Zen Center and I left for love, I fell in love with a cellist who was in Rochester. I could get a job anywhere with my skills. Orchestra cellists don't move easily. So I was the one that had to move. Um, and I practiced, the, the Zen communities here in Rochester weren't quite right for me or the Buddhist communities. So um, I practiced alone some, I got involved with the Unitarian Universalist Church with my first husband. Um, we ended up encountering Thich Nhat Hanh because um, a bunch of us from Rochester and from Minneapolis learned about the, um, I think it was the second uh, international conference around disarmament. Um, and we decided we were gonna go and do a meditation retreat in front of the United Nations where the conference was being held. And um, so uh, a bunch of us 
from Minnesota drove straight through to New York City, and someone had brought The Miracle of Mindfulness by Thich Nhat Hanh. And by the time we returned to uh, Minneapolis a few days later, everybody in the car had read that book and just were enchanted by Thich Nhat Hanh. And so then um, I and a few other people organized having Thich Nhat Hanh come both to Rochester, where he spoke with Gary Snyder at the Unitarian Church, and he was amazing. And then he spent a few days in Minneapolis with Katagiri Roshi, and they were like Dharma brothers. It was so wonderful to see Roshi have a peer that he could connect with so deeply. And he spoke uh, at our Zen community in Minnesota. And his visit to Rochester was the start of Blooming Lilac Community, which continues to this day and is a wonderful community. Um, And I've had some interaction with them over the years. But uh, at that time, because my first husband was not Buddhist and was more connected with the Unitarian Church, we both kind of dove in there and I continued practice on my own. And as I said, that was my big mistake in my practice. But then seven years ago, I encountered um, Dharma Refuge. Uh, It is a Tibetan Buddhist community. It was really my first exposure to Tibetan Buddhism. Um, I had continued and done some retreats with uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, My second husband, who I've been married to for 20 years, uh, is a lifelong Catholic but really was not happy with the way the Catholic Church was going. And we both ended up participating at a place called Spiritus Christi in Rochester. Jim Callen and Mary Rammerman were the founders of it. Um, They were both excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church because they welcomed heathens like me to come and have communion. Uh, They welcomed the ordaining of women like Mary Rammerman to be priests, and they welcomed people from any background, including gay and lesbian folks who wanted to come there and be married. And I have to tell you, I realized this year that even though they use a very different language and some different practices, what they are doing is exactly the same as Buddhist communities. They are working to create bodhisattvas, people who are there to serve the world at large and to help people awaken. And it was, is a wonderful community. I still go there on Thursday evenings with my husband. Uh, I did a lot of studying there. I did the Ignatius exercises, uh, which is a a 30 week program to really deepen one's spirituality. So I learned a lot, but always Zen practice was my core and Soto Zen, Shikantaza. So then I ended up connecting with Dharma Refuge and um, it felt like coming home to be part of a Buddhist Sangha. And the teacher there has some very big similarities to Katagiri Roshi. She is warm and welcoming and um, anybody can come. It doesn't matter what your background is. We get folks from many different backgrounds from the local colleges and and from the local community. And whether you are intensely dedicated to Buddhism or you are just there to drop in, you are fully welcome and embraced. Um, 
One of her main teachers is Adam Thupton, who is a Tibetan Lama who has a center out in California. I've done some retreats with him and a couple of his retreats have had a profound impact on me, which I will talk about in a, in, in a few minutes. Um, he's also a wonderful, wonderful teacher. So I've kind of done a wandering Buddhist path. I am not an ordained teacher. I've really focused on Buddhism in everyday life. Um, I've been involved in, in a major way with Dharma Refuge because we've been pretty much all volunteer. Even Sue was essentially a volunteer. Um, we have only a little bit of paid help. And so those who can just dive in and, and do what they can to, to keep the Sangha strong. Um, my mission in life um, is to live a balanced, compassionate life in service to the universe. I've used different words about that mission uh, over the years, but it is what kind of drives me. And I keep coming back to that mission. I think clarifying your mission in life is the first step in setting your life intentions. And I keep coming back to that mission because it helps me when I'm struggling, when I'm trying to figure something out. Um, and Tim reminded me of that. I did a coaching session with Tim a couple of months ago, and he basically said, come back to your mission. And it really helps me to figure out where I want to go next, what I want to do next. Buddhist practice is what enables me to clarify this mission when I get muddled and to live it to the best of my ability. And so what I wanted to do is sort of shape the rest of most of the rest of this talk in the context of that mission and each piece of it. So the first piece involves living with balance. Um, for me, that involves an integration of my practice with diverse inputs in my life. Um, Biakaran, I, I listened to her talk a couple of weeks ago, and she talked about Zen being a little weak on the side of dealing with emotions and incorporating emotions. And I think I agree with her that Tibetan Buddhism provides a little more in that area and has really helped me to kind of round out um, my own practice. She also talked about the integration of psychological work, and I I. I think that is essential if you're going to live a balanced life. Um, it's essential to do whatever psychological work you need to do to deal with past issues, especially. And often that means working with a therapist um, or a counselor. Um, for me, integrating some of the inputs from Tibetan practice with Zen. But I would also add some other things that have been important to me to be able to live with balance. It involves regular exercise, healthy food, healthy friendships, being part of a solid Sangha, doing lifelong learning. I mean, I'm still reading Buddhist books up the kazoo along with a lot of other books and having a teacher or a coach that you can connect with periodically. I hadn't really done that for a while. It was just wonderful connect with Tim a couple of months ago and say, Tim, I need a coach for a bit. Will you be that for me? And just one session was amazingly helpful. So we will probably continue to do it off and on. Um, Biakaran in, in, in her talk also talked about that something she got from some work with Pima Chodron, which is drop the storyline and be in the moment of the present emotion. 
doing that was led me to a peak experience in my practice life and in my life that I want to tell you about because dropping the storyline and connecting fully with what's real in the moment enabled me to make one of the biggest leaps I've ever made in my life. Um, during my last year of being in Minnesota, I was getting ready to move to Rochester to grow this relationship I was in. Um, but what happened is some things occurred with the person who was going to become my my uh, first husband, and he put the brakes on it. He said, don't move, move here now. Uh, I'm not ready for you to do that. So I had already given up the place I was going to live. I had already quit the job that I was going to leave. And all of a sudden, boom, here I was in Minnesota, and I couldn't move to Rochester. What was I going to do? Well, luckily, Floyd Weinkoff had a room in his home that he was willing to rent. And so I moved into that room. And on that day, uh, my eating disorder just boom. I had the worst binge attack I have had probably in my whole life. I thought I was going to die. I thought my stomach was going to burst. I was going to end up in the hospital and I was probably going to die the next day. And so I sat in this room with my dog. He and I had moved in. Uh, with my futon, my cushion, I sat in the room and I ended up getting in conversation with the room. And we spoke to each other. And basically what my room said to me was, you know, you're basically a good person. You don't deserve to suffer like this. Um, I had tried every diet imaginable, um, every contract with another person, with a coach at the Y over the last 17 years. This had been a 17-year struggle that ebbed and flowed over the years. Um, you really are a good person. You don't deserve to suffer like this. You had some good reasons for starting into this in terms of what had happened in your life, but it's really your responsibility now. You can make the choice. What's causing you suffering is grabbing that donut or whatever it is next, putting it in your fa face and eating it. You can make the choice not to do that. Nobody else can make that choice for you. And so I made a commitment at that point that for as long as I lived in that house, as long as I was in Rochester, I'm sorry, as long as I was in Minneapolis in that house, I would not binge. I didn't get more specific. I didn't do any big contracts. I didn't tell anybody about it because every time I had done something with somebody else, I found ways to cheat or get around it. Um, it was that profound experience of sitting on the cushion of recognizing that it was me who was causing my suffering at that moment, nothing else and that I could make a different choice that gave me the ability to stop. And while I still had some thoughts about it four months later, I knew that if I started, I probably wouldn't be able to stop again. And I didn't have any better ideas about it. And so that kind of kept me making the wrong choice about not binging. And that taught me that we always have a, focus, a choice in where we focus our thoughts and in how we understand or act on things as a result. Thich Han talked about that. He talked about 
what seeds we water. We can always choose to water the weeds or to water the healthy seeds. And we at any moment have to make that choice. In Native American culture, they talk about which wolves do we feed? Do we feed the wolves that are our higher or lower selves, good or evil, or the wolves of light or darkness? And even when we don't have a choice about our actions or our environment, we have a choice about our attitude or our perspective. Um, Joan Chittister, who is a wonderful Catholic nun who should have been Pope, if she had been Pope, the world would be a different place. Um, anyway, she's written a whole bunch of books. Uh, one that I especially appreciated was The Gift of Years, talking about her experiences with aging. She talks about recognizing and acting on our choices being important to create a balance in our life and to understand our aging differently. So many of us understand aging as losing things. She talks about aging as letting go of some things we're familiar with. But when we let go of that, other doors and windows open. And so what we have to do is feel the loss, recognize it, let it go, and then just stay open in the present and say, what door is opening to me? And as a person who is 75, um, yes, I can say there are definitely windows and doors that have closed to me in the past. But when I look at them and see them in the way that Joan Chittister talks about, I have to let go of that. I feel sad feel the sadness, don't ignore it, but let it be there for a while and it will change. And then look for that door or window that opens. There always is a door or window that opens. The second part of my mission is about compassion, living with balance and compassion. I wanna read you something from Mature Card who is one of my favorite, favorite Buddhist teachers. He's trained as a scientist, did a very intense Tibetan Buddhist practice for 25 years, was a translator for the Dalai Lama, has written many books. He's said to be, based on scientific research on his brain, the happiest man alive. Um, he is an amazing human being. I really recommend his books. Um, so uh, he talks about the following. He has a blog that comes out weekly. And in one of them, it says, to feel responsible for our loved ones is commendable, but we have the ability to open our mind and accept the responsibility for infinite beings. Why limit our deep sense of tenderness to a few people when we can extend it to all beings? And this is a quote from Jigme Kiense Rinpoche uh, uh, that Mature Ricard has translated. Um, and by the way, an apology. I just realized my knees were making my screen jiggle. So now that I know that, I am taking my knees away from the table and hopefully my screen will not jiggle anymore. Um, so coming back to this concept of compassion, not limiting our deep sense of tenderness. Katagiri Roshi manifested compassion in ways that affected me very profoundly. He spoke to the strengths in all of us and generally ignored our weaknesses. And I saw him do that over and over and over with me and with many other people. When he did raise an issue with me, which was very rare, once it was about 
um, leading chants in this ridiculously low voice because somehow I go into my chest and come out with a, a very low voice when I chant. Um, and I can't remember what the other time was. It was so gentle that I never even felt it as a criticism. It was just a gentle, gentle suggestion. Um, and it was only years later that I realized, oh, he was actually in a way criticizing me, but it didn't feel like that at the time. Mostly he just spoke to our strengths with compassion. Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of compassion, especially speaks to her heart, to my heart. I have a compassion, a, a, a statue of her that sits on my altar and reminds me. Uh, I've read books about her, um, uh, especially, um, well, several books about her. She is the Bodhisattva who is enlightened, but instead of going to Nirvana, remains on earth to help all beings wake up with compassion. Um, a part of compassion includes self-care, that in order to be compassionate with others, we have to be compassionate with ourselves. We can't do the work of being in service to others effectively without self-care. And Thich Nhat Hanh is very big on this. He talks about that you can't be an effective worker for peace if you don't cultivate peace within yourself. Byakuran mentioned two Tibetan practices that are very helpful, Tanglin and loving kindness. If you're not familiar with those practices, I encourage you to learn about that. There is another approach that, that I really focused on, sustainable compassion. Um, many people in my Sangha here have done sustainable compassion training, and you could go to a website, I think it's sustainablecompassion.org to learn more about that. Uh, it really helps you to develop compassion in yourself and then learn how to extend that to others. Um, everyone. And it has really transformed my ability to be more compassionate. Interestingly, acting in service to the universe also contributes to cultivating compassion. And so I want to move to that third part of my mission, being in service to the universe. Um, first, I want to read something that I just came across recently by Howard Zinn from The Optimism of Uncertainty, an article which appeared in The Nation in 2004. He says, if we see only the worst in our history or in our world, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act and at least the possibility of sending the spinning top of a world in a different direction. And if we do act in however small a way, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of presence and to live now as we think human beings should live in defiance of all that is bad around us is itself a marvelous victory. Being in service to the universe is essential to me. It always has been. I think it's part of the influence my parents have had on me. But we need to pick very carefully what speaks to our hearts. 
One of the things that speaks to my heart is helping Dharma Refuge. I did a retreat three years ago that Anantuptan Rinpoche led. And at every retreat he does, in one way or another, he asks you to look inside and figure out right now in your life, what speaks to your heart? What do you really need to do for yourself and to be in service to others? And this was in the middle of the Trump era. And what spoke to my heart, this was at the end of a five-day retreat with him, was that the best way I could be in service to the universe, besides taking care of my family, was to help people come understand a Buddhist perspective. I didn't care if they became Buddhists, but to learn about Buddhism and understand to see the world with those kinds of eyes. And the way I could do that best was to help Dharma Refuge to be strong, to support it in any way that I could, to help bring other people to it, and just to share whatever's been helpful for me and to help support Sue as our teacher. And so I have given a lot of my time to that in a variety of ways, but there've been some other ways too. COVID has impacted me, not so much in terms of getting sick or having financial problems. I and my husband have lived a very blessed life during this era of COVID. Our whole family has been healthy. None of us have had financial or work issues, but we have seen so much suffering around us in so many ways. Um, Rochester in some ways is similar to Minneapolis in that we have a fairly large um, BIPOC population in the city and then around us and poverty and around us is just unbelievable wealth and culture and richness and um, in the BIPOC community as well as in the white community. But a lot of the wealth is in the white community. Um, We have a challenged school system. We have a lot of violence. um, We have a lot of hunger in our community. And while a lot of people are trying to address that, it was clear to us that just on a day-to-day basic, there's a lot of basis, there's a lot of hunger. So we decided to open up a free food stand to join our little free library right in front of our house, which is on a busy street. We live in the city by choice. Um, Running the food stand has become much more intense than I thought it was and not always easy. Basically, people bring food and people take food and people who want to help but can't bring food send send Mike and I money or hand us money. And then we go out and buy food to put in the food stand. Um, We see people who clearly are living in poverty daily coming up to the food stand and taking things. But we also see people like a young man in his 20s who has this really fancy bike riding up and taking things. I've literally seen a person in a Lexus and many people in fancy SUVs coming up and taking things. And for a while, that really challenged my feelings about these people and is the food stand doing any good? And so I decided to talk to some of these people. And it's become clear to me that for some people, the bike they ride up on or the car they drive in on may well be the only major belonging they have. They may be living in their car. 
the bike may be the only way they have of getting to work or to school or to other things. Um, one woman told me, and she wasn't one of the women in the Lexus, but she told me that she brought, got food from the food stands to take to five people on her block who didn't have transportation, who didn't have a lot of money. One woman was cooking food for one of her disabled neighbors who couldn't get out and couldn't do his own cooking. I talked to a woman who came up, you know, white middle-class woman, young woman, might've been a student. I didn't find that out about her. It looked like she, was she a person in need? So her story was, and she, she came up to thank me for having the food stand. She had no money. She had no food. She was walking up to the hospital to give blood plasma so that she would get some money to buy food. And she thanked me from the bottom of her heart for having the food stand there. There are many stories like that. And so I stopped questioning the people that came up and the value of the food stand and just said, this is worth it. These are people in need. And anytime I start to feel critical, flip to that bigger mind of compassion. Um, another example of how being in service to the universe has had a deep impact on me and, and how practice has helped me with it is um, some of you may have heard of Daniel Prude's murder. Um, he was a black man, mentally ill, was essentially murdered by the police here. There were a lot of protests. There ended up being some violence between the police and um, the protesters. And a minister at Spiritus Christi asked for elders to come the next night when there was gonna be more protests and be a buffer between the protesters and the police to try and prevent the violence from happening. So I and about 50 other folks, most of us older people went and did that. Halfway through, uh, some of the protesters started getting pretty agitated and we thought that some of them might start over the barrier and instigate some violence by the police. And uh, I started getting full of terror, took a few minutes to just do my practice. I just took a few deep breaths. I looked into my heart, what was right for me at that moment. It was not to leave the protest. It was to stay there as part of the buffer. And then I ended up joining another older woman and we walked towards this one person who looked like he was about to go over the barrier and we just engaged him in conversation. And he ended up backing down and not going over the barrier. Nobody else instigated anything. And there ended up being no violence on either side that night. Thank goodness for practice that enabled me to stay and it was helpful at that moment. Um, I will say that my practice has enabled me to thrive during the pandemic being able literally every day to do something that was a benefit to somebody else and know that that was what was happening enabled me to stay in a pretty solid place for most of the intense period of COVID. And I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, a couple of things, other things I just want to mention much more briefly and then I originally had intended to because I want to leave at least 10 minutes or so for for dialogue. Um, 
now at the age of 75, what's up for me? Uh, I'm going to be continuing my roles at Dharma Refuge, but not quite as intensely. Um, part of getting back in balance for me is having a little more time for myself. And so I'm kind of weaning off of some of my roles that were of lesser priority, but keeping the ones that were at higher priority. And I thank my conversation with Tim for helping me to recognize that. I have faith in not knowing. Um, I learned that at, from uh, a wonderful 80-year-old Black woman that bottom line, just take some deep breaths. You don't know what's going to be happening in the next moment. Just have faith that you will be able to deal with it and in not needing to know the specifics. I use a hello old friend practice. If something comes up that uh, I start struggling with a lot or I feel guilty about in terms of the past, instead of obsessing with it, I say to it, hello, old friend, I recognize you. I take a few deep breaths and then I let go of it. Um, I am starting in a few weeks a writing liberation, the Buddhist practice of spiritual autobiography year-long course with Lama Elizabeth Munson. Um, we're gonna be reading some spiritual autobiographies. We're gonna be doing some of our own. And I see that as a way to kind of put my 50 years of Zen practice and other practice together and help me figure out whether I have one more hour or one more year or 10 more years or whatever, where do I wanna focus? Um, so I want to go with gratitude and gracefulness. This is what comes up for me whenever I revisit my mission. I have great gratitude for having encountered Suzuki Roshi's book for the wisdom and compassion that so many people have shown me along the way, especially for Tim, where our paths seem to crisscross along the way. And I have so much gratitude for him. He was an amazing support for me throughout my years in Minnesota. And uh, I really appreciate the presence he has in my life. I also appreciate the opportunity to share what I have learned with others and continue to learn with others. Um, and finally, one story. Many years ago, when I was struggling, I was in Vail and I was hiking and trying to put some pieces of my life together. I sat down next to this little imperfect tree, fir tree that was growing out of a rock and ended up meditating with that tree for about an hour. The tree and I had a very long conversation and what came out of it was what has really become um, a mantra for me, and I use it at the end of all of my meditations. And that mantra is together, may we take refuge in the beauty and the goodness and the love in the universe. So I look forward to hearing from all of you. Any questions, comments, uh, I would be delighted to hear.